For about 18 months now, we've taken some breaks here and there to cover uh, some different topics, uh, some various things, but about 18 months, uh, getting uh, right to the halfway point of this gospel. But don't expect that we're going to get out of it much quicker than another 18 months, all right? So uh, we'll, we'll, we're taking our time, uh, mining the depths of it, and there's so much good information uh, in here. Uh, and I hope and pray that today will be another time that we will see what the Lord has to say to us and we'll respond uh, accordingly. Well, last fall, uh, we completed John chapter 7, 8, and 9, because those come before chapter 10, so going through. And if you remember, we were talking about in those chapters how Jesus at the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles really confronted the Pharisees and the religious leaders. I mean, he got all up in their grill and didn't hold, pull any punches uh, in, in calling them out of their lack of faithfulness, their, their lack of believing in him, receiving him as Messiah. I mean, it's some of the most bold and antagonistic encounters that Jesus has in any of the Gospels, in his entire ministry with the religious leaders and the Pharisees. Pharisees. And you may recall where Jesus uh, kind of hijacked some of these festival things by, by drawing attention to himself and calling himself the source of living water and calling himself the light of the world uh, with the symbolism of, the, of these rich festivals that were taking place. So that was chapter 7 and 8. And then chapter 9, Jesus healed a man who had been born blind. And that even more uh, infuriated the religious leaders. And the thing about it was they refused to acknowledge the miracle. I mean, here's the guy standing in front of them. And they basically were like, no, no, something else went on. You weren't really healed. And they talked to his parents and they got witnesses. And they, they refused to believe it. And instead tried to do everything they could to discredit Jesus in some way. To get people to say, well, there's something wrong. He shouldn't have healed on the Sabbath. He didn't do it the right way. But try as they might... They just couldn't find that Jesus did anything wrong. So they couldn't do anything to Jesus because of this. So they get mad. They, they called the man who had been born blind, who had been healed. They called him a couple of names and kicked him out of the synagogue. They excommunicated him from the synagogue, from his family, from his friends. Uh, so Jesus, at the end of John chapter 9, comes back to this man. He finds him again, speaks to him about spiritual sight, even greater than his physical sight, about spiritual sight. And the man places his faith in Christ. He believes in him and is saved. Well, the Pharisees hear this interaction. They kind of scoff at this whole idea of, of spiritual sight and being saved in Jesus. And so Jesus, again, basically, you know, looks at them and says, well, you're spiritually blind. And they're like, what spiritually blind? And he tells them that because they refused to receive him or, or, or see the light that he brought, that yes, they indeed were spiritually blind. And so that's kind of where we left the story. Basically, the Pharisees are sitting there. They're scowling at Jesus. You know, they're, they're hopping mad, wanting to do something. But they don't know what to do because every time they try something, it backfires on them. You know, it never works out the way they thought it was going to work out. And so there's just kind of this stalemate, this, this standoff between, between Jesus and the religious leaders. And, you know, there are moments with these guys as we've been reading these encounters. They're, they're, they're brief moments where I almost feel sorry for these guys. Because it's, it's one of these situations where Jesus is saying some very pointed, some very harsh, uh, some very stern things to them. And it's kind of like they, they don't get it. They don't even realize that he's talking to them and that he's saying these things about them. It's kind of like being in school. Do you remember being in school when people would pick on somebody and they didn't even know they were being picked on? You, you kind of felt sorry for that person. You remember how you know, the jocks used to walk down the hallway and they'd pat some guy in the back and go, Man, we just want to thank you for being an awesome athletic supporter. And the guy's like, oh, you're welcome. I love watching you guys play. 
and they go off snickering down the hallway. You're like, oh, man, why are they got to be such jerks? And when I found out what they meant, I was not happy that they did. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. But, but you know what I mean by that situation? I mean, you kind of watch this going, you sort, of, you sort of feel sorry for the person to go, man, I feel bad for them. They, they don't even know that, that they're getting dissed on, you know, and that this guy's busting on them in that way. And, and that's the way I, I, I sort of begin to feel that way for these religious leaders. But it's usually brief because here's the thing. Jesus said some things to them and, and he was stern uh, and he was harsh in his rebuke and very pointed in what he said. And they didn't seem to understand it. But this is why my sorrow is brief, is because Jesus wasn't being mean-spirited. He, he wasn't being sarcastic or derogatory in any way. He was speaking truth to these men. And he was speaking truth so that they would understand and so they would change their ways. And so they, they would come and follow him and receive the salvation that he offered them. He wanted them to believe in him and to receive him, but they refused because here's the thing, they did understand what Jesus was saying to them. Because as Jesus said these things to them, you know what? They usually got mad about them. They knew exactly what he was saying and they would get mad. They would get upset and they would, uh, you know, uh, speak back against him and try to defend themselves in these ways. But they ultimately refused to accept or believe what Jesus said. And that can be such a tiring, wearying thing for us. Have you ever tried to debate or been in a de debate or discussion with someone who no matter what point you make, no matter what kind of argument you have, no matter how, vo how valid your point of view uh, or, or your side of the argument, the, they refuse to change their view or their opinion. You ever been in one of those things? When you realize you're in that situation, just walk away, okay? You're not getting anywhere. It's only going to serve to infuriate you. Just step back, walk away, and leave it for another day if you even come back then. You know, I've talked before about as a parent, and those of you who are parents know what I'm talking about, kind of getting into some kinds of debates with your kids. You know, my three-year-olds, you know, Shelly's going, stop arguing. He's three. You know, I'm like, but he's wrong. You know, dad's got to show him that he's right, you know? And I thought, well, as they get out of the preschool years, you know, to get better, you know, arguing with Daniel one day, Daniel, yellow and blue make green. All right. I've seen the Ziploc commercial. I know it happens, you know, it just, it, you just can't win. And so I thought, well, as they get older, it gets better, but it hasn't yet. So those of you with older children, tell me when we grow out of this, because there are points in times when I look at my kids and go, we're done talking about it. You're wrong. And I know you're wrong. And if you want to live life being wrong, then go right ahead. But I'm not talking about it anymore. All right. It's like talking to a fence post. I'm like, okay, I'm finished. And that's what is going on with Jesus and the religious leaders. And, and there's a point where I'm just thinking, just wash your hands of them, move on, be done with it. But Jesus is so patient. He's so loving, he's so gracious, he's so merciful. And that's a good thing for us. Realize that how Jesus interacts with these religious leaders is the same hope that we have, that he never gives up on us, church. He never gives up on us. No matter how many times, no matter how thick our skulls, no matter how many times we say, well, I know I shouldn't, but I'm going to anyway, Jesus still says, come on, let's get it right this time. Follow me. Listen, we can do this together. I'm here. We're going to make it. We're going to get through this thing. He never gives up on us. 
That's what happens in John chapter 10. So Jesus and the religious leaders, they're, they're at this angst. There's this standoff. And then Jesus tries another teaching technique, another strategy, another analogy here to try and help these Pharisees understand the truth of who he is and to help them see their need to follow him. So let's look at John 10 and see if they actually get it this time. John chapter 10, verse 1, truly, truly, and I've shared before because we've seen this several times throughout John, that when Jesus used this expression, which literally is amen, amen, like when you end a prayer and we say amen, that word means basically let it be so or so be it. So Jesus is saying amen, amen, so be it, so be it, let it be so. Uh, and it's a way of Jesus saying what, it, what comes next The next words, the next truth, the next point out of my mouth is a universal, undeniable, irrefutable truth. Jesus sets that up. When he says, truly, truly, he's saying the next thing is very important. You need to hear and rightly understand what's about to be spoken. So he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers." I want to unpack these verses this morning in this way. I want to talk about sheep herding or or shepherding, uh, as it's called, in Jesus' time. So you can see the comparisons that he's making as he talks here about a shepherd and his sheep. And then I want us to talk about the lessons or the truths that Jesus was teaching the Pharisees and the religious leaders as he compared and made a comparison between a shepherd and his sheep. You see, shepherds would take their flocks during the day and they would lead them to pastures. Sometimes they were close to home, close to a city. Sometimes they were further away, but they would lead them to a pasture and the, not a pasture, a pasture, green grass. All right. So you guys go, oh, the pastures are, no, pasture with, with grass. Uh, they would take them out during the day. They would eat. They would lead them to streams so they could drink and they would care for them. And then in the afternoon and evening, they would bring them to a pen or a corral uh, to, to leave them overnight for safety. And generally, these corrals were made of, of stone. Stone was a little bit easier to find than wood products uh, in that day and time in that area of the world. So they would have stones piled up and there would be a gate and they would walk them in through this gate. And there would be a gatekeeper or a corral manager who worked there. It was his job. And he would open and they would bring all the sheep in and they would stay uh, several flocks together, depending on the size of the corral, three, four, maybe upwards of 10 flocks would stay in a single corral or pen. The gatekeeper would, would close the gate to keep them in. And then his job and his duty for which the shepherds would pay him was to stay and protect the sheep overnight to keep them from animals, from other people, from marauders, from thieves and bandits. So he was going to stay there overnight so the shepherd could either Either go back home with his family, or if they were away from home, the shepherds would kind of have a little, you know, shepherd camp and they would stay there. But it was the gatekeeper's job to protect the sheep. And shepherds knew their sheep intimately. Uh, they, they cared for them, they loved them. The shepherds would often name every sheep in their flock. 
so they could call them by name. And it was cool. In the afternoon or evening as they were coming into the pen, good shepherds would get by the gate as the sheep were coming up, and he would look them over. He'd look at their face. He'd look at their legs and, 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 and their wool and their coat and their tails and everything. He was wanting to make sure there was no injury, there was no infection, there, there were no you know, bugs or, or twigs in their wool. He was looking to troubleshoot to make sure that his sheep were in good condition. And if he found something that wasn't good, he would begin to take care and treat and tend to that sheep in a, in a loving, caring, nurturing way. Uh, and so shepherds loved their sheep. Good shepherds loved and cared for their sheep. But the sheep also knew their shepherd very well. Like in the morning when the shepherd would come back, the gatekeeper would greet him, and the shepherd would step to the entrance to the pen, and he would give his distinctive call. Maybe it was a whistle. Uh, maybe it was a, a, a calling noise that he had worked out with his sheep. Uh, maybe it was calling his sheep by name. But he would step up and he would call out to his sheep. And this is an amazing thing. And out of this pen of however many sheep that were there, the ones that belonged to the shepherd would move. They would separate themselves from the flock in the corral. They would come to the gate, step out, and gather themselves ready to follow their shepherd coolest thing in the world. You know why they did that? Because they recognized their shepherd's voice. That they knew his tone, the inflection, the register in the voice of their shepherd. Now, if a stranger came and did the same call, the same whistle, they wouldn't respond. They would freeze. It would move a muscle. And if a stranger came at them in any way, they would run. They would flee from the stranger whose voice they didn't recognize. So you see in these pictures here, go, oh man, this, this, is, this is going to be some neat stuff. I mean, I think you're probably already putting these things together about Jesus as the shepherd and us as the sheep. Well, the shepherd would then lead them to their destination. Maybe he would take them to eat. Maybe he would take them to the shearer for the day, wherever else they needed to go. But as Jesus described this and as he talked in John 10 about a shepherd and his sheep, the crowd who's listening, the Pharisees, the common people, the, the, the masses who are around, they're all going... We get that. Okay, we understand how shepherds care for their sheep. We know this picture. And they understood that, that sheep didn't follow strangers. They just don't move. They don't go anywhere. So when Jesus was saying, if someone comes and climbs over the wall or enters in a way other than the gate, that person is a thief. That person is a robber. They're sneaking their way in to do something to the sheep because they know that the sheep won't follow them and they won't trust them. So Jesus spoke these words using this very familiar imagery. And look at the response. Did the religious leaders get it this time? Look at verse 6. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. No, they still missed it. We had an expression growing up in Kentucky. We would talk about a calf staring at a new gate. Growing up on the farm, you put something new out for the, for the farm animals and the cows. They're kind of curious. They walk up and they would just look at it. Chewing the cud. You're like, yeah, there's something going on. They're like, something's different here. But they have no clue what they're looking at. We talk about a calf staring at a new gate going, I see this, but I'm not getting it. And that's kind of that glazed look I think these religious leaders had on their face. They're like, okay, he's talking about sheep and shepherd, and we're probably in here some way, and we probably ought to be mad about it. But I don't know exactly what I'm mad about with it. But I bet he just said something probably not nice about us as the Pharisees. 
Well, let's talk about the truths he was conveying to see if they were thinking this, if they were right. Uh, and what Jesus was doing is he was comparing the nation of Israel to a flock of sheep. And he later clearly will state that he is the shepherd in this story. And he's the good shepherd and that the sheep know and they follow him because the sheep of Israel, the people of Israel, heard his voice and they recognized his voice as the loving, caring Messiah come to deliver them from their sins. And we're going to see this rift begin to pick up right here in John chapter 10 of people are following Jesus and they're not following the religious leaders. And the religious leaders go, hey, wait a second. All these people who are following us, they're not here any longer. And we don't like losing people. They're all going over to follow Jesus. They're no longer following us. And there begins to be this rift growing between where people are going and how many more people are following Jesus than the religious leaders. And Jesus is here saying that the Pharisees are the strangers. They're the ones who have climbed over the wall. They are the ones who are there to do harm and damage to the sheep, the people of Israel, and not as the good shepherd uh, who has come to deliver them and to lead them into pastures. And so Jesus implies it here, but he will clearly state it later in this passage that the Pharisees are bad shepherds. Calls them bad shepherds and calls himself, identifies himself as the good shepherd. Now, they would obviously not like being called bad shepherds. But you know what? Jesus had an example, a, a living, breathing, walking, talking, seeing illustration of why they were bad shepherds. Remember, this whole thing here is centering around the fact that Jesus healed a man who had been born blind. Now, you think about a good shepherd caring for his flock. If he has a sheep that is injured, that is hurt in some way, when that sheep is better, how's that shepherd going to feel? He's going to feel good. He's going to feel excited. He's going to be thankful that his sheep is well, that it's better, that it's healthy. But when Jesus heals this man who was born blind, how did the religious leaders respond? They wound up calling him names and kicking him out of the synagogue. They excommunicated him. Bad shepherds, Pharisees. You're bad shepherds. You should be excited. You should be thankful. You should rejoice at the miracle in this man's life. But you're not. You're upset. You're angry. And you, you, you kick him out. You, you cut him off. That's not what a good shepherd does. That's what a bad shepherd would do. So let's talk for a few minutes about some truths or takeaways from this passage. If you have been in church much at all in your life, this whole uh, shepherd uh, discussion may be somewhat familiar with you with this terminology. And you likely have heard it referenced to a pastor uh, who's called a shepherd of a local church and, and the, sh the people being the, the flock or, or the sheep in that. And, and that's an appropriate uh, analogy, an appropriate application to make because the New Testament uses several words to describe a pastor, myself, all of our associate pastors, it calls them shepherds, uh, it calls them pastors, calls them elders, calls them bishops. All those terms are used interchangeably to reference a, a pastoral leader within a church. And the most common one that's used is that of a shepherd for a, a pastor over the church, the, the flock that God has called him to lead. But I don't want you to think about this passage only in that because you're going, okay, this is for Curtis up there and it has nothing to do with me. No, it does have stuff to do with you. We'll talk about that in a moment. But I want to hit something that Jesus drives home in this chapter. Good shepherds love and care for their sheep. 
Get that in your brain. Good shepherds love and care for their sheep. Now, that would seem obvious, and you go, well, duh, we're getting that. But don't miss the truth here that the Pharisees had been neglecting the sheep, the people they were called to lead and to care for. They had neglected that. They had abused that role and that responsibility. They had misunderstood the shepherd-sheep relationship. And unfortunately, in church life and among pastors and among congregation members, there are some who lean into one part of the shepherd-sheep relationship and completely miss the love and the affection and the interdependence that takes place between the shepherd and his sheep. Some pastors love to emphasize some characteristics and traits of sheep, such as this. Sheep, it's pretty well known, are smelly. They're they're pretty dirty, they're defenseless, they're helpless, and they're pretty unintelligent. Or you can just say dumb if you would like to, all right, to to not be as politically correct. So, uh, if that's the case, pastors are shepherds and the people of the congregation are smelly, dirty, defenseless, helpless, and dumb. You're welcome, okay? But but, but here's the thing. I I say that to say I'm not one of those pastors, all right? First and foremost, let let me say that. Secondly, that's the thinking that's found in bad shepherds, not good shepherds. And then finally, know this, that God's desire has always been and is still to this day that his people... God's flock of all who believe and come to him, that they would have good shepherds who love and care for the sheep that God has called them to lead and to take care of. You know, godly shepherds could most appropriately, and I think should most appropriately, be called under shepherds or maybe assistant shepherds. Because my role, my task, and the task of of all of our pastors here at Mount Pleasant is that we follow the good shepherd, the only good shepherd in Jesus Christ that we learn from him. And what we see from him as our good shepherd, that we also live out and exercise among this body as under shepherds, learning from him. And that's the way scripture teaches that truth. I want you to listen to this word from Proverbs on the wisdom of good shepherds caring for the sheep that God has placed under their watch care to see that there's, a, there's an important relationship, an important connection here. It says, know well the conditions of your flocks and give attention to your herds for riches do not last forever and does a crown endure to all generations. When the grass is gone and the new growth appears and the vegetation of the mountains is gathered, the lambs will provide your clothing and the goats the price of a field. There will be enough milk for your food, for the food of your household and maintenance for your girls. The point of this proverb in chapter 27 is that shepherds should care for their flocks and make sure their flocks are well cared for because those flocks will in turn provide for the shepherds themselves. If the economy tanked and your, shepherd, your, your flocks were unhealthy uh, and weren't able to provide for you milk or, or meat or wool or anything, then you're done. If you pursued riches to the point that you neglected uh, your flock, when the, when the bottom fell out of it, it was all over. But if you cared for 
properly cared for and loved your flocks and maintained their health and their vitality, then you would always have them available to provide things for you, for your family, for your household, even uh, if there were no other economic uh, opportunities for you to, to provide for yourself or for your family. And so good shepherds knew the benefits of having healthy, strong, and well-cared-for sheep. For instance, sheep provided wool. You you grasp that, right? Take them to the shears. The wool that was provided not only provided clothing for the shepherd, for his family, but could be sold to give him money and income for other things. So good shepherds understood this. That's why they cared for. They wanted healthy sheep to regularly produce wool uh, as it was a profit thing and it benefited them. They also, uh, sheep also provided milk for drinking and for selling. And healthy, vibrant, Sheep produced more sheep. They had lambs. And those could be sold. They could be raised into another flock. They could be eaten. All right, where do you think we get the idea of lamb chops? All right, so, so there you go. I mean, that's, there were a lot of things that sheep would provide for the shepherd. And in the direst of circumstances, adult sheep could also be sold or they could be slaughtered in their various parts used for various purposes. So those are some of the real practical surface level things, but there's also a real companionship sort of level uh, that took place between the shepherd and his sheep. I mean, his love and his caring for them uh, brought enjoyment and pleasure to him. I mean, some, many of you are pet lovers. You have pets and you know about that love and that affection and that bond that people have with pets that they don't have with other human beings. Okay, so there, there was this level as well. Now, this analogy of how the sheep provide for the shepherd doesn't always parallel in the church. I mean, you all don't grow wool, so I'm not going to shear you, you know, on the way out. Okay, so that's not part of our our mutual, you know, relationship here. And some of you look like you've already been sheared or you're you're out of shearing opportunities. Clark's is coming back in, so he's ready for his next shearing uh, down here. Now, now, nor do I have plans to milk or eat any of you, all right, today. So just, you can rest assured there. I will be glad to eat with you, especially if you're paying. But I, I draw a line, a strong line uh, about eating uh, church members, all right? So that, that just doesn't happen. But there are the, these benefits of, of being in relationship and community together as pastor and a shepherd of this flock and, and with you as a body. And I consider it a privilege and an honor to serve alongside you and be able to be here. And the trust that you've given me to preach God's word and, and to make decisions and lead in some capacity. But you see, our mission and our aim isn't about me. It's about the gospel. And collectively together with our talents and resources and skills and who God has called and assembled in this place, we can do so much more for the cause of the gospel than I could ever even think about doing on my own. And so it's a privilege and an honor to be here partnering with you for the sake of the gospel. Now, I'm going to hit this again in the upcoming weeks, but, but you need, I want to underscore it again. God's desire has always been that his children are cared for and led by good, loving, caring shepherds. And we'll pick this up uh, later in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, But in Ezekiel 34, some of the strongest, most stern words of rebuke are spoken, in my mind, in all of Scripture. And it's directed to the religious leaders. The prophet Ezekiel, speaking on God's behalf, gives a scathing rebuke. I mean, he blisters a group of people in Ezekiel 34. 
And you know how he blisters them? And you know how he speaks in terms of? He compares the religious leaders in verses 1 through 10 to bad shepherds. And he says, this is what you have not done. You were God's people. You were God's leaders. You were placed and you were given a responsibility. You were given a task to be loving, caring shepherds. And you didn't do it. And because of that, God is going to have his retribution and his justice poured out upon you, the religious leaders, for being bad shepherds. We'll pick that up, but I want you to get this from the point that Jesus calls us to be good, loving, caring shepherds. Well, let me bring this home uh, and land this thing this morning. Here's what I want you to walk away with today. Every believer, every believer is called to follow Jesus, the good shepherd. We are all called to follow Jesus as the good shepherd. Capital G, capital S, the good shepherd. And we are called to shepherd others in our circles of influence, our areas of leadership, and our areas of care. Two things, we're called to follow Jesus, the good shepherd, and we are called to shepherd other people that Jesus calls and puts in our circles of influence and under our leadership and care. Now, I think this is pretty easy to understand. I think you're all sitting there going, "Eh, yeah, I probably get that. It's not necessarily easy to do, but I think you're probably putting these things together in your own mind because it's pretty clear. But let me make a couple of applications here and remind us of a couple of things. This works itself out in the fact that we are all given certain levels of leadership and responsibility and care in our lives. You may be saying, well, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a leader. I'm not. No, no, no. You have the opportunity to be a shepherd in some way, some relationship, some form in your life. If you are a father, a dad who's here this morning, you are called to shepherd and be a good shepherd to your family. To provide love and care and leadership to your wife and for your children. That's where you're called to follow Jesus as the good shepherd and be a good shepherd for your family and in your home. So, well, how do I do that? You do that by following Jesus the good shepherd and doing what he instructs and models for you to do. Well, what does Jesus say to dads? He says, well, it says to husbands, husbands, love your wives As Christ loved the church, Jesus the good shepherd set set an example for us. And how did he love the church? He sacrificed. He gave himself up for the church. So husbands, there's our leadership. And we're to sacrifice and give ourselves for the leadership of our wives and of our children. We're called to lead our children as well. And so we follow Jesus, the good shepherd, and we grow in our relationship with him. And then we do what he tells us to do in our home for our families as we follow his example. And moms, the same thing falls true for you. You're called to shepherd uh, your children as well. And that's not the only area of influence, but that's one particular area. So how do you do that? You follow Jesus, the good shepherd. You fall in love with him. You cultivate your relationship with him. And you look at what he tells us to do in scriptures, to to submit to your husband, who, who is, as a good shepherd, loving you and cherishing you and leading you as a good shepherd. And then you teach and you, you instill and you pour your life into your children uh, and, and into that family relationship. That's the starting point. That's the call that God has given to you to follow after him. 
in your workplace. God gives you and has strategically placed you there to be a good shepherd to the people that you supervise if you're a supervisor. And did you know that you can be a good, caring, loving leader and still hold your direct reports accountable? You can still motivate them and you can still rebuke and you can still correct them without being a jerk or a jerkette? Is that... You know, your female supervisor, however that works. You can do that. You can be a loving, caring shepherd and still accomplish the goals you need to accomplish in your workplace, in your environment. And God has called you to. Jesus calls you to follow his example and do that. Did Jesus rebuke? Did Jesus correct? Did Jesus motivate? Did he marshal people? Did he give them a charge and entrust them with duties and responsibilities that they would fulfill without him having to be there looking over their shoulders? Yes, he did. He did all of these things. He's the good shepherd. We look to him in everything and he leads us. He sets the example that we follow in the areas and the places where we shepherd. And some of you are going, well, I'm not the boss in my place, applesauce. Well, I know you're not the boss, applesauce, but you can still be a good, loving, caring shepherd to the people around you by investing yourself in their life and investing yourself in those people. You can be a leader among equal uh, by, by following Jesus, the good shepherd, and then showing love and care and mercy and compassion and ministering to the people who are around you. People will see that difference. Last month, or how many months ago it was, it's February. Now, Monica came and shared about uh, the opportunity that she had in her workplace, how God was opening doors for her to minister and to get to know other believers and share witness and testimony. That's part of shepherding and leading people as you serve alongside them. You know, another way for you to be a good shepherd is to serve and shepherd and care for people in this church. You know, every Sunday school class that we have, every ministry area provides an opportunity for us to shepherd and love and care for other people. Think for a moment, if you've been in church, maybe grown up in Sunday school, you had a small group leader, or you've been in ministries and have a, a youth pastor or a pastor, a children's pastor. Think about who's your favorite Sunday school teacher that comes to mind or your favorite pastor or a favorite minister. Who comes to mind quickly? Don't say it out loud, but just kind of who pops in your mind pretty much like that. It could even be a school teacher. Now, why, if I were to talk with you, why did you think of that person? I'm going to say 10 to 1 here that probably the reason is because that person, that teacher, that man or that woman took the time and invested in you personally. They took an interest and they knew you and there was, there was a, a loving, caring relationship. You probably don't remember all the lessons they taught you. You probably don't remember all the, uh, the, the teaching points and the illustrations and all that, but you remember their life. And their example. And they come to mind as a favorite person in your mind because of the love and the care and the relationship that you experienced with that person. You know, Pastor Joe and Pastor Jeff will tell you that in our, our uh, student and our children's ministries, they're not looking for leaders who just show up for duty. I mean, they want you to be there. If you're supposed to be there, obviously that's part of it. But they want people who invest their lives in the lives of the people that they're shepherding, that they're leading. 
And it's not just about the classroom time. It's about that outside of the classroom, that connecting in the hallways and, and investing in those lives. My kids, my older kids, uh, they love getting cards in the mail from their teachers and their ministry leaders or phone calls or text messages or we'll, we'll show them an email that came that way. Uh, we've got people, some of their, their uh, leaders who will show up for their extracurricular activities, basketball or drama, the things that are going on. I mean, my kids light up when, when they walk in a room and when they see them. They think that's the grandest thing in the world. And you know, Shelly and I feel loved by them loving on our kids in that way. And so that's the investment. That's the time of how you shepherd and pour yourself into the lives of other people. The classroom is part of it, but it's that life investment that makes that significant difference. And these same principles apply uh, to shepherds and adults as well. Show love and care by investing in people in the circles of influence and the areas of leadership that God has called and placed you. And God has called and placed each of us in areas and places where we can shepherd other people, whether they're part of his flock now or who may be a part of his future flock. And we'll see this as we continue on in John chapter 10, that Jesus speaks of those who are not yet in his flock, but who he wants to be a part of his flock. And your ministry and your care and your support and your love to these people is an opportunity, a way for you to help them take one step closer to placing their faith and their trust in Jesus as their Savior. Well, we're going to look at this in greater detail in the upcoming week, so I'm going to call a timeout here in verse 6. But I want you to walk away this morning chewing like good sheep, you know, chewing here on a couple of things. First, ask yourself, honestly, seriously, deep in your heart, you, between you and the Holy Spirit, are you following the call of the good shepherd for your life? Are you following the call of Jesus, the good shepherd, for your life? Have you believed in Jesus for salvation? You see, the Pharisees refused to believe. They rejected Jesus' message, his offer, his invitation to believe that he was the Messiah, to believe that he was God's son, and to receive him as their savior. And you know, you can refuse to receive that gift of salvation as well. But I pray that you won't. Romans 10 says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Today, the good shepherd is calling for you to come and follow him. Will you hear his voice? Will you respond by confessing your sin? By believing that Jesus died for you and then inviting, asking Jesus to come into your life to forgive you of your sins? to give you the gift of eternal life, and then ultimately to take control of your life. Will you hear his call and respond to his voice today? That's the most important call that you will ever respond to in your life, is the call to place your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. Secondly, are you being a good shepherd in the circles of influence and leadership where Jesus has called you and placed you? There can be and there are bad shepherds. In the home, in the workplace, in our schools, in our neighborhoods. But God is calling you and me to be good shepherds who obediently follow after him. Are you lovingly and caringly leading those under your care? Or are you mean? Are you abusive? Are you insensitive? Are you uncaring? Take an honest inventory of your life. 
of your leadership and of your example. Ask Jesus, the good shepherd, to show you, to reveal what you might need to do in your life to be a good shepherd, not a bad shepherd. Maybe this morning Jesus is leading you to new pastures or or to a new flock of people to love and care for. Maybe he's opening a new door of opportunity or ministry for you or calling you to be a better shepherd in your workplace, in your neighborhood with your neighbors, some ministry here in the church. If so, then there is nothing more important than you following that call. And no fear, no reservation, no hesitation that you have is significant enough to keep you from fulfilling that call that Jesus is speaking to you about today. So I ask you again, what is the good shepherd saying to you this morning? 